HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to The Great Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Nicholas Gazuck. Am I okay calling you Nick for the rest of the day? I'm not calling you Nicholas for the whole day. 100%. Okay. Um, We're going to talk to Nick about Inskillen, ice wine, Canadian wine, and more. We're going to taste a bunch of ice wines. We have a whole bunch of bottles in front of us. During this show and for our weekly wine sip, I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Ontario's own Nicholas Gazuck grew up around a wine loving family with an interest in fermentation and chemistry. Nick graduated from the Niagara College Wine and Viticulture Program. He went on to intern at wineries in Canada and also worked harvest in the Barossa Valley in Australia and Marlborough, New Zealand. He returned to Canada to work at Inniskillen in 2013, working under winemaker Bruce Nicholson and eventually becoming head winemaker in 2021. Nick stresses, and I'm going to quote him, we must respect the fruit and terroir as that is the foundation of every great wine. Our job as winemakers is to guide those grapes with as little intervention as possible into the bottle. Nick and Inskillen are most recognized for their world-class ice wines. We're gonna get into a bunch of other things. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Nick. Thanks for having me, excited to be here. Did I get all that right? You got all that right, Okay. You know what I forgot to ask, and this is the dumbest question to ask on air. Pronounce Inniskillen for me. 
Inniskillen. It is Inniskillen because yes. that I is in there. Because yep. I think a lot of people say Inskillen. Yeah, they kind of skip the middle yeah. or miss the N or miss the double L. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's Inniskillen. All right. So we're talking to Nick um, in Midtown uh, Manhattan. Uh, Nick made a market trip down here with the offices of Colangelo and Partners. All right. Let's get right into it, Nick. Your parents and grandparents were wine lovers, so you certainly grew around it. And your grandfather also made wine, home winemaker. What I'm curious about, because I can relate to the Northeast, New York, and all that, what was everyone drinking in those days? I mean, if they were wine lovers, were you drinking what I was drinking, or is it different in Canada? It, it was a little bit different, right? So you think about the, the hybrid varieties that were around at that time, right? So uh, Cayuga White, the Niagara's, all those Spumante character sweet wines were very prevalent in the area. But that's we, what you were drinking? Well, that's what a I lot mean, of people were drinking. Were not a lot of wines available, but the locals were, and that's... So, so the locals were there, and cheap. Thankfully, we have what's called the LCBO, which is run by the government. So they bring a lot of imported wine. So we had access to all those French varieties, German varieties, Italian varieties, right? So we're slowly getting access to more and more. But, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's a a region that's developed over time and really starting to find its identity. What your grandfather made homemade wine? I mean, what kind of grapes was he using and where did he get them? Uh, so he got them from local, there was a couple local nurseries in the Niagara region, and, uh, you know, they were always a, a mixed hodgepodge of grapes. And he did, uh, you know what a lot of the home winemakers do, plant one vine of this, one vine of that. So it was like a backyard field blend. A backyard field blend, and then he'd blend everything together, press it off with one of the basket presses, and then throw it downstairs in a couple barrels, and then he'd slowly siphon off into demijohns, and it would be grandpa's special blend of the week so a lot of people i know friends friends parents make home wine and i would say 80 percent of the time it's terrible Mm. what's your memory of your grandfather's wine oh just the most bitter and sweet thing at the same time that you couldn't get your head around why it was so bitter yet it was so sweet on the finish you just, I just never knew what well, he did. Well, now that you're a winemaker, I mean, was it because he left the stems on or something? Uh, I, I, I honestly think it's because he was impatient and never waited till they were fully okay. ripe. I always remember him. He was smashing grapes and pressing grapes, and it, it seemed like it was always when I was going back to school. So that's September. We harvest grapes all the way into October and November. And so, he so he was very so early. The bitter is the, the picking. Yeah, sugar. the picking. Okay. The, so he was never patient enough to actually <laughs> make funny. a good wine, I think. It's funny that you. Um, it sounds like it was interesting. Was it okay? I mean, was it good? Or? It was not bad. Okay. You know, like he had a 9% alcohol wine with like, I don't know, 25 RS. And you know what? It had some flavor to it and some character to All it. Right. But All right. he wouldn't sell it in a wine shop for 50 bucks. I'm telling you that. No, I don't think uh, he could get that. And they probably wouldn't take it. Um, tell me, you know, after growing up around that, we talked about you going to college. When did your real interest in wine yeah, so, come as a profession? Like looking forward, hey, I could do this or I want to do it. I mean, where were you? How old were you? Yeah, so 
wines again it's a question i ask a lot of people is always how do you get into wine right it's always to be in wine you have to be passionate uh it was definitely not my first career path i was a, a soccer player younger i was really destined to go play a f full ride scholarship in the u.s was that realistic it was realistic it was on the table it wasn't until... your parents thinking you're good and you really no won. i had okay. the scholarship i had everything then i blew my knee out lost my scholarship so i started at guelph university a little bit later um i did a a, a bachelor science and molecular biology and food science. Uh, I challenged myself. I'm always that guy. Being a competitive soccer player challenges the name of the game. I always have to have a challenge in front of me. So I took all the hardest classes, neuroscience and including food science, which was really the uh, the beginning of my fermentation journey and understanding what grapes were, what they had us make a cheese. So that kind of was kind of the sparked jumping the off. jumping off point where I really kind of thought, well, being so being in school, being in classes, learning about fermentation. I it was very interesting to me and then I had done I was going to start a master's under a prof doing some research for cancer and I realized it wasn't for me so I plan three was to move back to a little intense right a little intense yeah that was a hard conversation yeah. with mom and dad yeah uh, and then I moved back to the Niagara region and I was like well you know what I'm from here wineries are growing this is a big business around here what so year I, are we talking so that would have been oh, 2009-ish okay there. and then I moved back I volunteered for a winery for the summer and then I hopped into the Niagara College program because I was kind of done with the university at that point. After the first couple months of being in the college program, still working at a winery, I was hooked. Just the amount of creativity, science, being outdoors, working with your hands. It was the perfect mesh of right. art, science, and creativity all together for right. me. Um, so was I right that you went abroad? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So was that your curiosity was so peaked, you know, how yeah. are other guys doing it? And let's I really again, we're a cool climate region in Niagara. And I really want to, again, the reason to go to New Zealand was to find get a region, box. right, oh, to get sure. out of that box and figure out what everybody else was doing. And then I wanted to experience the hot, right? So I went to the south of Australia, and I was there for quite a long time went for went to a producer that was pretty well renowned, Grant Burge. And you know it was it was a real good experience for me working in that heat, right? So taking aspects of all those different winemakers, and then working under a couple other wineries at the same time. So I was doing dual vintages. So work a Southern Hemisphere harvest, come work at a North American winery, do a Southern Hemisphere. So it gets you some harvests under your belt really quick in a short period of time. So you come back, and are you doing stuff? before you get to Inniskillen or? Yeah, so at that time I was doing dual vintages and I worked at a couple small wineries in the Niagara area. I worked at Rosewood Estates, Flat Rock. Right, um, I forgot about My that. second trip back to Australia, um, I was there actually driving a tractor at the same winery. <laughs> um, and I did my interview with Bruce for Inniskillen from the tractor picking grapes at three o'clock at night because Australia that summer time was so difference. hot. It was so hot and the so time that, difference, right? So that obviously went well, right? It went well and you know the opportunity Did you know of Bruce at that point? Yeah, yeah, right. So I mean it, after school and studying after school and studying and learning about Canadian winemakers, Bruce, again, the original winemaker for Jackson Triggs was probably the most popular Canadian wine. And then he went to Inniskillen for the last 14 years. So like the opportunity to work under a guy that was successful not only in BC but Ontario huge opportunity right, so that's a good segue for me i want you to answer this question but i don't want you to spend a ton of time on okay. it, all right and the question is give me a brief history of in a skill and okay 
you know, you and I talked about it off air. It's been around a while, but not like, you know, Chateau Lafitte. Where I thought, you know. No, no, no. So give me a little, and anywhere you could weave in Canadian wine history or, you know, whatever, yep, what was fair going enough. on. Um, Just tell me, so when we start talking about the wine, you know, they know what the setup is. Yep, so... The name is actually, it actually comes from the War of 1812. Uh, Colonel Brock and Colonel Cooper, uh, they enlisted the help of other European nations to fight off the Americans. Uh, so a regiment came over, they were called the Inniskillen Fusiliers. And at the time after they won the war, it wasn't a, here's a bag of money, it was here's a piece of land. So the piece of land that Inniskillen now sits on was the land that was awarded to Cooper Cooper, which he named after the regiment that helped him win the battle. Um, that piece of land was about three kilometers down from where uh, Don Zeraldo had his family nursery. So they used to grow grapevines and rootstocks. Uh, Carl was an immigrant that uh, worked, was in Austria, met his wife there, they moved back to Canada. At the time, he was, again, like yourself, like, what kind of wine is everybody drinking? And realized it was kind of crap. So coming from Austria and having good wines, he wanted to source Benifera vines. So he found that Zeraldo Nurseries was selling them bought some, planted them, and was making wine at his house. And Carl, being the good gentleman that he is, brought Zeraldo some of those balls of wines. And Zeraldo said, you made this out of the grapevine? He goes, yeah. And then, So Carl was doing it for years before Donald couple, came in? A couple or, of years. Uh, right, because right, Donald just, was supplying the... He was supplying the grapevines. And then Donald, the salesman, and the two of them just hatched a plan to say, let's do this. So they went to the governor at the time, got the first winery license in, since Prohibition. Uh, they got that license, started planting the property that it currently is now, and it, it all evolved from there. Um, so we're talking mid-80s? Beginning of the 80s. Um, 70s, they were planting, 79, 78. The Vidal Vineyard that's actually on the Brayburns estate there, there's still four rows of 79 plantings. There's still four of the original Vidal rows there that we keep for show. All right, so let's talk about that. So Inniskillen has multiple vineyard properties, right? Yep, yep. I mean, acquisitions through the years type yep, thing and all that. Yep. Um, if people close their eyes and they think about Canada, where is Inniskillen located in Canada? Um, and then tell me a little about just you're standing there. What am I feeling in the climate? What kind of soils am I dealing with? And let's talk about the vineyard properties. You just mentioned yep. what is a Brayburn, yep. you know, where there's the original rose and all that. It's certainly grown from that. So I, I think people, when they think of Canada, they're thinking ice, hockey, and igloos, which is, you know, a huge misconception. Molson. A lot, like about 40% of the U.S. is above the Niagara region, right? So you, you look at it on a latitude scale of where Niagara is, runs through the tip of Northern California and through some of the greatest regions in Burgundy, right? So that climate, we have about 1,400 growing degree days, which is great. If you're standing on the Brayburn property, um, you're standing basically in a really cool microclimate region. And why, why, what's so cool about that is we have the lake to the north of us, Lake Ontario. It's one of the deepest freshwater lakes in the world. So 14. there's a lake effect for sure? Big time lake effect. We have Niagara Falls running parallel to the region, which causes a huge influx of airflow because it's always running So water. just for me, how far is Niagara Falls away? Niagara Falls is less than 15 kilometers away. Oh, okay. So if you're standing at the Brayburn Estate, you could see the plume of moisture coming out right. from the falls. 
right and then there. behind us we have the beautiful escarpment which is this big elevation that allows what we call a diurnal effect right so the warm air from the lake rises hits the escarpment and then flows down so anytime even on the most still day if you're anywhere else in in ontario you could say that it was still but in niagara you stand in one of our vineyards you're always feeling airflow on your face because it's all sloped towards the lake and that effect from the escarpment really forces the air down which is really cool yeah um you're kind of lucky to have that effect very very without very it so. i mean you got problems without it um soils soils vary um they vary you know because you can go to certain places where there's california or burgundy and you walk you know a half a you walk 10 yards and it's different yeah so there's again it's all carved out by an old glacier like uh, iroquois glacier right so there's a lot of clay it's a lake bed soil scenario right so there's lots of clay sand silt those sorts of characteristics but then up on the bench you have lots of stone gravel and limestone and we have properties both on the plains in niagara lake and up on the bench which is very cool so even some of our table wines were blending bench fruit with warm hot fruit which gives two totally different characteristics you to have the wines. diversity and the choice yeah which is a lot uh, of fun yeah um all right let's talk about vineyard properties um you know how many where are they you know how far apart are you generally working in the region you know tell yes. me yes yeah, so our estate property brayburn it's right um tucked in the corner of what we call four mile creek appalachian which is right along the river um, it's a it's a little bit smaller. Is that a designated appellation, or yep, are you? Yep. So we have twelve designated appellations under VQA. Okay. Um, which is explain our, what VQA is. Yeah. So Vintners Quality Alliance is our governing body, right. just like the DOCG right. is, and all those other appellations. It was modeled after the French system, right? So we had somewhere to give a sense of place or terroir to our wines, right? So now that we can only not only say that they're from Ontario or from Niagara, but we could dig down to a little bit to subdivide those areas. Okay. Um, so we have properties pretty much in almost every appellation now as a company because we're in a scale and zone by our Terra Wines Canada, which is the largest wine company in Canada. Um, we operate a little bit independently of that brand, right? So everything... When did that happen? Uh, so we were owned by Constellation up until the beginning of 2019. Right. And we were bought by the Teachers Pension Fund, which started the our Terra Wines When Canada. did the... Was there an outside owner before Constellation? So we were Vincor Canada before that. And okay. Then Constellation bought us. When did there. they sell to Vincor? Uh, so Vincor. I mean, how long were they independent? Uh, was nineties? Uh, no, it was up into the early two thousands. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And then we were with Constellation for about six, six, six years, seven years, and then we've been our Terra wines for the last four now. So, so you said you have properties in all the Appalachians. Um, all owned or owned and contracted? Owned and contracted. Um, so as an internal, we own probably about 25 different sorts of properties varying in size. Um, but again, contracted, some of these properties were actually owned by Inniskilner in the early days. If, if you look, we're on the Brayburn Estate, the property to the north of us is now owned by Vandelar Vineyards, but was an Inniskilln property back in the day. Same with across the street, so it's owned by Albert Seeger, but Carl and Donald actually planted right. that vineyard, right? So not not that we don't own them, but they've been bringing their grapes to Inniskilln for over 35 years, and they still do today. 
So all in, what kind of property are you dealing with? Uh, so we as a company bring in close to uh, 26 to about 29,000 tons, which is a good substantial, yeah. about 1,600 acres, which is, which is a good chunk of change. Um, it's a quite a bit. So as a brand, Inniskillen makes about 260,000 cases of table wine and about 10 to 15,000 cases of ice wine a year. It's a decent amount. Yeah, it's a pretty um, big chunk of change. Yeah. And for Canada. And for Canada. <laughs> yeah. And then um, you asked about properties, and I, I really wanted to talk about Montague, which is a really iconic vineyard in Niagara. There's a few vineyards that have names that really ring bells with people. Lowry Vineyard, um, Montague. There's a couple of these well-known properties. And Montague has some really age-worthy vines on it now, some 40-year-old Chardonnay, 40-year-old Pinot Noir vines, which I get to play with, which is a lot of fun for our table wine program. Wait, the vine age is only four years right now? 45. Oh, 45. 45. I'm Who cares about 40-year-old yeah, 40 40-year-old. No, yeah. That doesn't matter. No, 45, 42-year-old, right? So they're really coming into their own character and and really showcasing what we can do in Niagara. And when I say that, it's about those those specific varieties for me, Pinot, Chard, Riesling, and Cap Franc. Interesting. Um, you and I talked about this off-air, mm-hmm. and we both agree it's a tricky subject, and you and I could probably do a whole show on it. Um, but, you know, I'll simplify the questions. Climate change. You know, everybody thinks, oh, Canada, cold weather. I'm more curious about what the effects of climate change has in a cold weather growing region. Mm-hmm. You know, the question was, how is climate, affect, climate change going to affect you? How does it affect that region and what you do, which is primarily ice wine? Yeah. Um, so I think the question... People think, well, is it going to be cold enough to make ice wine? And, and right. you know what? It's, it's getting it's, warmer. Are you going to be okay? We're going to be okay. I don't see force, foresee that changing the next little bit. There's going to be a, have to be a lot of ice that's going to have to melt before that happens. Again, if you've been in Canada in January, February, it's cold enough. I think the bigger question is how's it affecting the growing season, right? So the so key, how? the key to making grape great ice wine is having a good growing season and having healthy grapes because you have to get them all the way through harvest and into that period where they actually freeze so we're going to have a little bit of warmer temperatures we're already set up as as a region to have a, a kind of a shorter growing season than some of the great regions in the world where they get bud break about two to three to four weeks earlier than we do so I may potentially have to worry about the bud break being a little bit earlier and having a frost, like in France. Um, which the last few years... Which have been challenging. This you, year... You've seen all the burning pots and fans yeah. and everything. This year, I see I see that they're large, largely unscathed. Um, but again, that's a concern that we have. But we also are blessed with that lake, right? So it's, it's a huge moderating effect to us. Do I see fluctuations in large amounts of heat? It's going to be challenging because the lake absorbs so much. Does the lake up. freeze in the winter? Or? That's that's the key factor, too, on why we have so many grapes in the area, right? So if that lake ever froze over, what it does for us during the growing season is cool the vines at night. But in the winter, it absorbs all that heat during the summer and releases that heat, right? So it doesn't freeze over. So it can be... In the north end of Toronto, minus 35 across the lake. But those northern winds are blowing that warm 2, 3 degree air into the area, which keeps the vines kind of warm. Interesting. So it's really on the front end where people, like you said, you yeah. know, would think. Um, and like I said, it's a, it's a very involved subject. Um, all right. So let's start talking about 
the wines and what you're doing. So, you know, Canada is starting to make some good wines with, you know, a lot of different varietals, and we'll talk about them. We'll get into that in a few minutes. But let's stay in the wheelhouse for a little bit, all right? I want to talk to you about uh, ice wine, which, among other places, is very much associated with Canada. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think ice wine, you don't think South Carolina. All right, so you're the guy to help me with this. Tell my listeners, and, you know, don't be nerdy. Try to be simplistic. Tell my listeners how ice wine is made. Okay. Um, So, again, there's... The real way to make ice wine. The I, only way. Is this the same question? What is white ice wine and how is it made? Or, you know, if, if yeah, both of those need to... Okay, I so address it's that. It's one okay. and the same. Okay. Um, so the process of making ice wine is that we actually leave these grapes on the vine into the winter months where they actually freeze through solid. That temperature is regulated in order to call a product by VQA ice wine. It needs to when be. you say regulated, what do you mean? So VQA, our controlling body, has a set regulation on what an ice wine is. That means it needs to be minus 8 when you pick it. It needs to be 35 degree bricks in a tank, so there's a minimum sugar That's requirement. That's the sugar. The grapes all need to be registered by November 15th. Any block you intend to pick for ice wine needs to be registered. Once you pick, you have to send a juice sample of them to get regulated and validated that it can be ice wine. And once we are done making the product, it has to go through a tasting panel that is controlled by VQA to make sure that it's a fit product to be called ice wine. So before you start blending and everything, you're sending it to like a government panel where they go... 100%. That's kind of a pain in the ass. A little bit, but... So really the aspects are you have to get to a certain temperature, freeze, you have to get to a certain sugar bricks level. Correct. And then what was the last thing? And then you have to make the product and you have to get it tasted. Right, you have to to vent it and all of that. Um, What's the temperature you said was what? Minus 8 Celsius. So, but... Can it go above? It can't go below? I mean, so how does that... Nitpicking here. So that that temperature range will give you a very... Because, again, the idea is that we're actually freezing the grapes, right? We're separating the water. So we're forming crystals in the grape, leaving the water behind, and when we press, we're getting concentrated grape juice out of that, right? So instead of we're leaving 80 to 90% of the water behind, and we're getting concentrated juice liquid, right? In concentrating, we're getting all those beautiful flavors concentrated as well. What I like to say is there's a sweet spot when it comes to ice wine. And ice wine's made by a lot of Canadians, and minus 8 is the regulation. I take it a step further at Inniskillen, and I go to minus 10. What that does for me is it shortens the window at which those sugars can come off. Because Inniskillen ice wine's all about balance. So I want to be between 38 degrees bricks and 42, which gives me a, a tighter constraint on the production of ice wine. Right. Um, so you push it a couple. I push it a little bit more, yeah. right? Um were was Nicholson and the other guys always doing that, or these are things you stumbled on? Well, so again, the great thing about Inniskillen, right, is Carl largely started the whole process and, and tended to it for the first fifteen years. Bruce, fifteen he, years after him, they experimented and they, they experimented, right? So, right. and that's a common question: what makes Inniskillen different, right? There's been three guys that have been doing this for forty-five years. There's a lot of pitfalls when it comes to making ice wine and having the knowledge. I have Carl's old notebooks working under Bruce for 10 years. I've seen a lot of these pitfalls and I can avoid them very quickly. And it's also a good reference because every vintage year is a little bit different. 
Well, with with wine. Yeah, with wine, that's the standard. I mean, I don't want to offend you, but it sounds like you have an easy job. All the work's been done before. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I could probably go up there and do it, but that's another podcast. <laughs> You'll interview me on that, all right? We won't worry about that. All right, so one last thing to that. You told us about the vineyard. Now the wines are picked the grapes are picked in a normal way, brought in, and it's basically made like wine we know wine made? Uh, it's a little bit different, right? Tell so, me the difference. So the, we used to always handpick. It's a little bit challenging to get people to go out in the frigid cold and pick ice wine these days. Um, handpick because you'll damage? Or? No. So, again, you, it, that's a big misconception. These grapes are frozen. They're like marbles. You could throw them off the ground okay. and you're not going to do damage to them. It's a lot different than when you're picking table wine. Um, it's also a good quality check when the harvester's going through because I can hear them frozen. Because real feel is a lot different than wind temperature, right? They actually have to be frozen through. Once we get them all picked to the winery, we need to press at minus 10 too, right? So that window of opportunity can only be three hours. So we need to pick and press at the Is same time. Is this outdoor presses or temperature outdoor controlled? Press, outdoor presses. Okay. Some of our growers So you're have, on a tight window. We're on a tight window. You're it's picking and pressing pretty much within instantaneously, whatever. Instantaneously, within instant, half an right. hour. Right. right. Okay. They're picking, dumping bins, and I'm already starting to press. Um, once, so you press at the temperature, the juice starts flowing. So you got that out of the way, right? Yep. That's a requirement. Yep. Then what happens? You go through the process, or it's different too. So again, the juice about it's about making sure the juice is really healthy, right? So when it comes to Vidal, which is the common grape that we use, it's it's a very phenolic-y grape. So we, we do a little bit of treatment. Explain what phenolic is. Phenolic is it's the ability of compounds in the in the juice to make it brown. Right, so okay. we, don't, we don't want you don't want ice wine that looks brown or has if a brown. If you leave tinge. an apple out and it turns brown, is that phenolic? That's phenolic. Okay. That's what's happening. Okay. It's it's oxygen affecting the, the 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 organic chemical compounds in the apple. Same thing with wine. So we want to protect the juice. Uh, I'm a firm believer in doing treatments to juice and not to wine. I think they integrate better. So making sure that the juice is in the right spec before we start fermentation is key to making great ice wine. So we'll treat the juice, get it in the right spec in the right spot and by that I mean we rack it a couple times removing solids um, getting it as clear as possible and then starting fermentation fermentation generally for a table wine is anywhere between a week to two weeks ice wine's a little bit different so it's up up close to three weeks almost four weeks sometimes why Why? do you need the extra time it's not that i need the extra time why does it require it's the yeast right so you're dealing with a viscous liquid now uh it's a lot more dense than typical juice so you gotta go hardy pressure right so it's pushing pressure on yeast what we call osmotic pressure the ability of a yeast to transmit stuff across its membrane is a challenge so we have to make sure the yeast are happy and healthy. They don't get to move around as freely because it's more dense, it's more viscous. And yeast are suicidal maniacs. They're <laughs> fermenting alcohol, which is toxic. I've never to heard them. them referred to that way, right? but so it makes sense. They're doing something that they know is eventually going to kill them. So having a yeast culture built strong enough to get me to the finish, because nobody wants to drink a 6% 400-gram residual sugar wine. That's just not the end. We no. got to get at least to nine percent alcohol, right? So that takes a really strong culture to do that. Right. Um, I want to talk about the grapes, but I'm going to jump ahead to something. Um, I want you to talk, to, and we're going to go backwards to the grapes. I want you to talk to me about uh, vineyard and cellar practices. I know you're a hygiene freak. I yes. Um, but how do you? 
categorize this. You've also, you've used the words low intervention, mm-hmm. you know, which is not a buzzword, but it's the right thing. It's thoughtful it's right thing. What do you, are you doing treatments in the field? Do you have to because where you are? I mean, are you tickling organics? You know, you're not using indigenous yeast because I don't think you can make ice wine. You know, so tell me about practices, field to cellar. Yep. Um, so vineyard management, again, we, we, we have become a lot more sustainable in the way we do things. So it starts with scouting big time. So we have digital maps of all of our vineyards where we're scouting specific panels. We look for infestation diseases. In the past, if we noticed that there was leaf hoppers or bugs in the, in the, during the growing season, we would spray that whole block, which may be 42 rows. We can now drill down to oh, only three rows and seven panels over here are affected. So we're only spraying three panels and those other seven so panels. So to that point, you're doing treatments, but instead of just blowing the whole property out, you're trying to be respectful to the yeah, rest of so the property. We're respectful to the land. We're not throwing anything in we don't need to. Uh, we use recycling sprayers now, too. So instead of those big sprayers that are blowing across half the field, we can spray four rows at a time. It's using a quarter of the actual pesticide that we actually need to use. So that's very respectful. Um, it also comes down to cropping properly when it comes to ice wine and table wines making sure that we're doing leaf removal keeping those vines healthy pr- promoting airflow so that we're actually not needing to spray because we don't have right. disease pressure moisture have, could, you mentioned moisture could be an issue but the lake effect and the breezes help you right big time they help and and we do we have drainage between every other row too to bring the water away so that's actually a tile drain that's put in between the row about four and a half feet down to help move moisture away from the plants so that's kind of what we're doing in the vineyard um in the the actual cellar uh, we don't rest on our laurels you said i'm a hydrating freak that's number one you look at any one of my tanks they are spotless the winery is getting a little bit older but my tanks are very clean the way we're improving is investing in new technologies an example of this is a is what i call a ceramic disc filter that we have now so when i started in a skill and we would have large vast amounts of lees the solids after we rack the juice and we would have to leave them for weeks or months or treat them with chemicals or enzymes to get the clear liquid away from the solids right which was not good for the juice we're adding stuff to the wine that we don't want to have to add but we have to because it's such a high value product this machine i challenged myself to find something that could process ice wine lees so it literally takes solid lees that's maybe 30 to 50 percent solids turns it churns it down with no chemicals added it doesn't matter to the temperature of the juice what's in the juice and it turns it basically into peanut butter so we don't have to wait as long so we're being more sustainable because we're actually using 95 percent of the juice that we actually want to make ice cream which is huge that's great being inventive, looking for new technologies and using things that are better right so even things like enzyme rates when I started, you used to have to use two, 300 mils per hectoliter of certain enzymes to break down pectins, which are, if you've ever had apple juice with pulp versus non-pulp, the only way to break down pulp is to break, use a pectinase to break the pulp apart, right? So using enzymes that are now more efficient, better, more sustainable, vegan, all of these sorts of things we're taking into consideration. But that... You don't have a choice with ice wine. Sometimes, no, you don't have a choice, right? It is, it's a hard liquid to work I with. I mean, it's a silly question, but can you make a nothing added, nothing taken away, natural wine, ice no, wine? You, no. You can't do it, there's, right? There's no natural yeast. 
like in right. these conditions that will ferment that wine to where I want it to get. So we, we, we have a set set of commercial strains that we use. But again, I'm very adamant about clean winemaking, and you said it yourself. So I'm avidly testing these wines for the amount of nitrogen, amino acids that are available, because all of those things need yeast need to use to consume. It's their food to make alcohol, right? So if the wine has plenty of amino acids and nitrogen in them, I'm not adding those things. I'm leaving it in the current state that it is and letting it get, get its production done. All right, Nick, we have to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about the grapes, the varietals, okay. you know, what goes into ice wine. And like I mentioned, you know, talk about some of the other wines. Um, we're talking to Nick Gazuck. Nick is the winemaker at Inniskillen in Canada. Um, you're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Nick Gazuck. Nick is the winemaker um, in Canada and in Eskillen. Um, we've been talking about really what Inniskillen is well known for, and for good reason, and that's their ice wines. Um, so we talked about the cellar, we talked about the vineyards, we talked about the process. Um, I skipped, but I want to talk about the grapes. Um, There's some specific grapes um, that go into making your ice wines. Because yep. if you pop into France, they're not using the same grapes. So who cares about that for now? All right. So one of the prominent grapes that's important to Canada um, for ice wine is the Vidal grape. Um, I think it's a little known grape to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm going out on a stretch on that one. Um, and then you use Riesling. Let's talk about the Vidal grape. Tell me a little about why it's so ideal. Tell me a little about some of the characteristics about it. And I I didn't ask you this off air, but does anybody make non-ice wines with Vidal? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, but let's keep it in the ice wine kind of. Sure. Uh, yeah, so Vidal, again, it's, it's a grape that's thick-skinned. It has natural high acidity, two characteristics that you really need for ice wine. Why thick skin is important, again, we're leaving these vines out into 
Mother Nature's hands for you need a big two, coat. Yeah, they need a big coat, two, three months, right? So preventing disease and not having to spray them, not having to crop thin them, not having to do too much of them makes Vidal one of the most consistent ice wine grapes. It's why 80% of the production in Canada so is that, Vidal. So the physical characteristic is the skin. What did you say? The acidity is? Yeah, it has naturally great high acidity in it. It also has these beautiful apricot nectarine flavors. Vidal is very distinct once it's fermented and got through the process. So it's a very aromatic ice wine. All right. So, Nick, you and I have been tasting four wines before we sat down and while we're sitting down. Um, so we tasted two off air, and we're going to taste two on air. So while we're talking about Vidal, let's pick the Vidal up and... Let's talk about it quickly. Yep. So this specific wine is 100% Vidal? 100% Vidal. This is our 2019 gold. Uh, why it's called Gold Vidal is I wanted to elevate the status of Vidal by uh, adding a little bit of French wood aging. So second and third year old, second, third year old French wood uh, added into this wine for about two months just to give it that mid-spice lift that we see in the wine. Uh, I also leave a little bit higher residual sugar in the back end to match that spice note. Because again, for me, ice wine's all about balance, beautiful acid, beautiful residual sugars, and all these lush, lush intense flavors that we get out of it. So. The other wines don't see wood? Nope. So none of the other ice wines in my what category. Is it? is it stainless? Is it's it all concrete? stainless, okay. stainless fermented. And um, what's the characteristic that you try to get and do get with the wood? Uh, it's uh, like a clovey spice note in the middle of the palate. Right? So Which, spice. Yeah. It really, you, you, clove is really the note that you'll say first. 100%, right? So you get that nectarine, you get that peach that you get on the pearl, but then that clove note comes in the back end. Mm, you're you get right. that little bit of wood tannin roundness on the palate with the sugar in the back end on this one. So it's it's a it's a pretty beautiful gold. Um, are, do those teeny bubbles on the bottom mean anything is that coincidence oh that's just that's just yeah i didn't know if that's you know acidity or whatever um what kind of alcohol so uh our inskill and ice wine is generally a nine to ten ta which is similar to a french champagne you got about nine to ten percent alcohol generally right about 9.5 and then we have a residual sugar anywhere between 220 to about 260 on most of our ice wines it's gorgeous um all right so we also know Germany's well known for their ice wines. Yeah. Right? Eisenwein. Um, right. And Riesling is king in Germany. And they make their sweet wines with Riesling. You make a Vidal and you also make a Riesling. Yep. Um, tell me the difference. You and I tasted it, and you explained it, but yeah, so they're two distinct wines. Very distinct. Um, Riesling is very elegant in its nature. The way it grows, the skins are a bit lighter. It takes a lot. Lighter skins meet tougher vineyard. Tougher you know. vineyard management, tougher control, harder to get to the finish line. Ideally, if I can harvest my Riesling ice wine in December, I'm a very happy guy. It's one of the first things I'll pick. I can leave Vidal out through a fruit, a through through a few freeze thaws, frosts, but that first chance that I get frozen Riesling grapes, it's coming in. Why Riesling? I, I think it has just, it has all the right markers to make beautiful, intense, sweet wines. 
The spectrum of fruit on the Vidal is very tropical, nectarine, those sorts of flavors, where Riesling is very aromatic, tropical, thiol-driven wines that really approach well to a lot of foods. So it opens up the whole green aspect of fresh vegetables, fresh salads, spicy foods, Thai foods, Korean foods. It really lends itself as a food wine naturally high acidity as well similar to the Vidal but sometimes can get up north of 10 acid which is great when you're talking about a sweet wine it just has all the great markers to make a a one-of-a-kind wine so if it had a thicker skin it would be oh, like it would be like the perfect thing the right? perfect thing <laughs> at least for you um what about growing season you know if you talk about germany different climate different everything in Canada um, where's the benefit is it in Canada or is do you think it's in Germany I mean what? I think right now we got the edge over Germany um, why I think we're more consistent right now they've they've missed some ice wine vintages they've been um, having a little bit of trouble getting to the actual cold temperatures in the areas that they plant ice wine they've been dealing with some late moisture pressure on the hills and the slopes in Germany where they don't have airflow, these grapes potentially can rot on the vine before they can get them off for ice wine. So they, they've been dealing with some challenges in the last few years where we've been very consistent. Uh, we are have, those a couple of bad years or that's kind of... It, uh, it remains what to be seen. Fe- right. right. It really remains to be seen. It could continue to be inconsistent. Yeah. So the word here for you is consistency. 100%. We, you, we talked about it earlier. Yeah, we, we haven't missed, right? We're, we're always there. Um, again, I, I, f- I firmly believe that we, we're going to make an ice wine pretty much every year for the next 20 years. I don't see a reason why we're going to miss or have a problem getting... Again, we may not make all the varietals. I'm not saying we're going to make the whole collection, but we're going to make ice wine one year, right? There's right. been years where I've made Cab Franc and it's pressed off white. It's just not the year for Cab Franc. There's been years where we skipped Riesling just because we didn't really need it or it just wasn't the perfect season for it. But again, we're going to make some some form of Vidal pretty much every year, I'm pretty sure. Right. Um, I want to talk to you about Cab Franc, but I think I'm going to leave that towards the end of the show when we do our weekly wine sip. You and I will taste it and that will give us a chance sure. you know, to delve into that. Um, let's not discount the fact that Canada is making wines other than ice wine. 100%. Um, I forgot to ask you this. When you're growing Vidal or Riesling for ice wine and you're letting it sit on the vines to freeze, your take when you harvest is what percentage as if you were just growing, you know, the grapes to make... (laughs) So it, it's crazy, it, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's it's pretty astounding, right? So you think about the volume that we would receive. Again, I'm going to have to do this in liters. Sorry about being Canadian, but it's all right. uh, we're going to the Google average table wine harvest. You're going to get 680 liters to maybe 750, 740 liters a ton of grapes. When it comes to ice wine, we're going to get five to ten percent of that, which is Jesus. 100 liters. Jesus. Okay, and that's if you're lucky. If you're, if you're getting the pressing, you're right at the right peak. The grapes are still healthy. They haven't dehydrated too much. Because the longer we rate in the season, too, the more freeze and thaws, the more they dehydrate. We're always losing volume. This is a very high-risk-reward product, right? There's a reason why a lot of people don't do it. So it's kind of 
earned and obvious that you're going to pay more, you know, for an iPhone. Think <laughs> about it. It's like, a, it's like a tenth of the, you know, output. It's almost crazy. You know, what are you doing that for? All right. So let's talk about some of the other varietals. Yep. Let's stay within Inniskillen. Um that seem to grow well in Canada yep. and grow well on the uh, Inniskillen properties. Um, Riesling, Pinot Grigio, you know, walk me through the predominant grapes and yep. just tell me which are the more planted ones. Uh, so we'll start with whites. Again, Riesling's very prominent in the area, does very well. There's lots of Pinot Grigio, Pinot Gris. Um, Chardonnay is a huge hitter, again, it's the most planted grape worldwide. There's no reason why it can't be in a grows cool, well there. It grows very well. Again, we do it in a cool climate style, similar to places like New Zealand and the West Island of West Side of Australia, right, where it's very a clean. We're not the big buttery Chardonnay California no. style. Um, we also do things like Semillon. We do Viognier. I have Viognier actually on my property that I love growing every year. Sometimes it's a little hit or miss with Viognier, but it does well. What do you use that for? Blending or? I know I make, I make a table wine out of you Viognier. Did? Yeah, um, that's fun. Sometimes I throw the skins in with uh, some of my Syrah as well. So a little bit of fun take there on on a Syrah. Um, then we go to our reds. Again, we do Pinot, Merlot, Cap Franc, uh, Syrah. Pinot is a finicky grape, like Pinot, Riesling, yeah. thin skin. I mean. Does it do okay up there? It does okay, right? Climate so and everything. We, we talked about the airflow, right? So Pinot's Burgundy in latitude. Same latitude as Burgundy, right? right? So again, we have those cool nights where rot doesn't thrive when it's cool. It starts to slow down. If you're patient enough into the season where we could have some early disease pressure, you wait till it dries up and then you could pick a little bit later. It does very well. There's no reason why we don't make world-class Pinot, which we, we do. But people just don't know it yet. Well, yeah, um, I mean... I and then we do the big guys as well. We do... Cap Franc is huge for us. It's a great varietal. It does very well. Versatile grape. We do Syrah and Cab Sauve, too. In, in some of the best years, they're, they're really, so really what, stunning. What are the most planted varietals? Uh, I would say Pinot, Chardonnay, Riesling, and Cap Franc are usually the top four. Pinot, Chardonnay, Riesling. Yeah, that's usually the top four. I, again, I'm, I'm not keeping Vidal in that category. It's probably up there as well. Right. There's a lot of we'll, Vidal. We'll but, put that but off the no, to the side. The noble varieties, those are usually the four that we're really talking about. Um, what's the most challenging to grow? Obviously, if you're keeping it, but it's challenging. What What is like? Um, in my opinion, growing-wise, Pinot's hard. It, it's hard everywhere. Right. Tight cluster. That's got any categorically. That's just categorically yeah. hard. I think Merlot is a challenge sometimes for us, too. It's not as winter-hardy as the rest of the rest right. of the reds, so it's very finicky sometimes. you really got to get it in the right spot. You have to get it in a warm site. Uh, if you've done your research... So Merlot needs heat, right? Yeah, Merlot yeah. needs heat. Right. Um, more than Cap Sauv. More than Cap Sauv, more than Cap Franc, more than Syrah. Got it. it it's not as winter-hardy as the rest. Uh, but it does make a beautiful, elegant wine, and I think that's often misconstrued. Thank you, Paul Giamatti, for that one. But yeah, um, uh, it's, maybe it's made a comeback. <laughs> but I think it's really good. Um, yeah. So I, I remember reading when uh, Donald and Carl started. 
they were planting gamay. Yep. So is there any gamay up there? I, yeah. So in my one of my series, I have a discovery series gamay. Gamay's has a real resurgent right now. Again, there's a couple of varieties that are really making a comeback. Gamay being one of them. Baco, the new hybrids are still. You're starting to see in the Finger Lakes people using Cayuga White for pet gnats. You're starting to see Vidal table wines and all these different. And I think that's just a turn of the guard. Young winemakers, yeah, revisiting all these varieties and trying to make a, a good product out of it's them. It's a refreshing, cool. it's very know, cool. change that people are um, doing. So that. I don't think it's just resting on what we do well already. So I think we're again. I brought back Gamay, I have Baco back in my lineup. We have some Marquette now on our property too, which I might dabble into in the next few years and maybe doing a Passamento style wine on that. Maybe I think it's got an opportunity to re- do really well. So yeah. There's uh, in Vermont and in the Finger Lakes, there's this resurgence of hybrids mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, Nathan Kendall is using Catawba and yeah. you know, all these, you know, crazy. And I think it's very cool for a lot of wine professionals and Psalms and come from places like Italy where, you know, you're not allowed to use hybrids, right? So coming down and tasting these wines, it's a totally different world and learning for them, which is very cool, too. All right. So... I want to ask you a few more questions. I want to answer, want you to answer my wine list, and then we're not avoiding Cab Franc, which I know is a favorite of yours. We're going to mm-hmm. spend time with that at the end of the show, tasting and talking. Um, I'm asking you this question because I care and I have a little concern. Do you think Inniskillen and even other Canadian wineries have done a good job? marketing ice wines and these wines let's start with the u.s consumer and I, even abroad i, I do mean, I is do. it where you want it to be what can you do i mean stuff like this helps yeah, but yeah. stuff like this helps uh, i think originally ice wine was misconceived as only a sweet mm-hmm. dessert wine and i think that's still the way it is viewed today and again my mission is really to sh- show people that it's a beautiful aperitif it can pair very well with intense. I'd hold that thought for a second. Yep. Because that was my next question, and you okay. and I talked about it. Um, so part of it is education, which we're going to follow up on. What about, you know, sheer obvious stuff like marketing dollars or ambassadors? I mean, Laura Catena and her dad literally came from Argentina to the U.S. and made Malbec a thing. Yep, yep. You so know? I think it could use a little bit more forethought. I think... Once we got out as far as we did with our export network, and I think Constellation not putting premium on the priority list and just resting on the laurels we had for a little while, I think wasn't the best for ice wine. Not only did they not Innis- get it, I like, don't think I, I'm not saying I, they, their intentions it. weren't wrong. They just didn't get they where didn't to go at that time. Get they didn't get the fact that in my mind, when I think Canada, I think hockey, ice, maple syrup, ice wine. They didn't understand that this could be an iconic Canadian product, right? And they didn't really push the envelope to make it so, which I think with our new ownership, the way we're going about it now is really making people understand that ice wine is synonymous with Canada. It's right. really that same right. thing, right? So, so this, the story's good. It's a beautiful story. The, the quality is you know, it's great. It's not like, how do you push a crappy thing? It's like, you know, when you get it out there, it's it's really good. Um so there's still some work that needs to be done. 100%. There were some missteps in the past, but the runway ahead looks pretty good. It does look very good. Okay. Right? So there's, again, the U.S. is a big market for us. So 
we're going to be here a lot right. showcasing these wines. All right, you were alluding to this, and I'll re-steer us back to it. You know, I said to you that ice wine could be like champagne, where people sort of think of it as a singular thing. Mm-hmm. It's like crack the champagne, it's a birthday. You know, ice wine, oh, it's this sweet wine, you know, we'll have it for dessert or whatever. Um, I think you were saying and continue that that's not just what ice wine is. Not at all. You know, so tell me why people should think about ice ice wine, you know, in all circumstances. Well, food friendly. Food friendly. Again, you got beautiful acid. You have a wine that's very intense. For intense, intense foods, you think duck, pâtés. You need a really rich wine to match with those things. Yes, it does very well with all these sorts of desserts, with honey, all of those things. It does very well with them. But again, main course wise, you can pair it with very rich foods. You can use it in marinades, things like chicken, pork, all of those sorts of things. The acidity in that softens Wait, the Wait, use it in the marinade? Use it in the marinade. Okay, that's a right? cool thing. Because I know you should pair wines to the sauces as 100%, much as the meat. Right? So using the ice wine actually in those sauces and cooking with so, it and then serving it with the meal. Nick, you're a big baller. That's an expensive cooking wine. Well, you know you, what I'm but saying? you're already going to open it, right? So, you, again, I'm not talking tons. You only need a little no, bit. No, I know. A couple teaspoons, right? So... Again, cooking with it, using it, not only thinking about it, just pairing. But then you put it beside beautiful, strong cheeses, blue cheese. So that's, I was so, let's, we're, we're having friends over. You have a charcuterie platter. You have creamy cheeses. You have sharp cheeses. You have, you know, salamis, prosciutto, hard cheeses. A lot of people use blue cheese with those fig jams or whatever. This goes with all of that? All of it. You put Vidal ice wine on a nice cracker with blue cheese and honey together. It's a match made in heaven. Why? Because the ice wine cleanses all that creaminess. The acidity cuts through those palates. It's a palate cleanser. So you go back to the ice wine, then you pick up your salami. You got those fresh flavors in your mouth, right? right. So it's actually the cleansing oil, the, the fat oil, from the salami. The fat. It really pulls all those flavors out. And it really changes those foods as you're eating them. And again, you think about wines that you're going to have with lunch. This is nine and a half alcohol wine. Right? You're having lunch with friends. You don't well, want to I'm drinking there. this stuff for the yeah. last hour but and a half. I have no buzz. You don't have which to worry great. about that. Yeah, you I don't mean, have to worry about that when you're going out for a lunch. Yeah, well, that, that's a nice thing to do. And you another know, cool thing is how often, being a wine guy, being a wine nerd, you go to friends' houses. You want to bring a wine. How often do you show up when there's a champagne, a pinot, and a chardonnay? That's always it's what's different. there. It's always what's there. It's different. Bring something different. It's different. I'm not saying bring my sweet wine, but bring a sweet wine. I think you're giving champagne more credit. I don't think people show up with enough champagne. <laughs> no. I think they show up with the chard or, you know, some blend or I, something. I know some champagne groupies, so maybe, maybe that's my different. Is All right, so for a main course, you know, we don't have to go through the charcuterie plate, but... If you, and I'm going to ask you this question in another form later, what's the perfect ice wine main course pairing? Um, So for me, again, again, I would love to see a nice roasted duck leg with my Cab Franc, with a a Cab Franc glaze on the top of it, with some fresh greens on the side of it. It just works so well together. Duck is such a dominant flavor that you need a wine that can really match up with that. Right, so it works really good together. It sounds great. Um, You know, the Cap Franc. Um, All right, so uh, let's jump into the um, let's jump into the wine list, and then 
Let's get to the uh, Cap Prank, which I'm dying to taste and talk about. All right, so I have five questions. I've asked the same five questions to everybody. Okay. Don't dwell on these. Okay. We're running out of time. Be spontaneous. If you go too long, I'll cut you off. All right, so the first question is, what are you drinking now? Besides tasting, blending, and all that, what's in your fridge? What do you like besides this? When the seasons change, do you switch from this to this? Um, what's on Nick's table in Nick's fridge? I'm a sucker for rosé right now. I'm a part of that Okay, trend. so that, is that a seasonal thing or uh, rosé all year round? Uh, I like rosé all year round. Okay, so especially, give me a couple things you're liking. Especially in the summer, right? So for me, I'm a big barbecue guy. I like smoking stuff. But I can't sit outside and drink a 14% cab, 15% Syrah. So rosé works for you? Works with beef. So good. But, I agree. I mean, people think rosé is like a summer pale pink. Know, I mean, there's we can get into a show on rosé. But there's there's different rosés, too. you got to find a rosé that is, I, I don't want to say meaty, but bigger, bolder, purposely made rosé with lots of flavor, right? So not something that's either drained off or blended, but like a purposely picked rosé. Give me a couple things now that you're liking or drinking. Um, I'm always a sucker for... Um, Loire Valley Cap Franc again, Cap Franc, Cap Franc based. Cap yeah, Franc based. I'm with you there. Cap Franc based blends. Okay, I, I'm always picking them so up. So people remember them. that rosé could be made from you know all kinds. Of, yeah, there's Italian rosé with Sangiovese. There's yep. French. So what Nick's alluding to is he loves Cap Franc. The Loire is famous for Cap Franc. Their rosés are made from Cap Franc. Um, anything else you could think of? Uh, Provence. Yeah, they're doing some cool things there too. Right there. Who? They're, what's I? I can't think of the winery. The woman that lived to over a hundred oh. uh, made uh, Provence starts with a P. I think I, I'll come back later. All right. So anything else besides the rosés? Um, I'm I, bone dry Riesling too. Um, okay. You know it doesn't sell very well in the market, but if you put a Riesling German, for me, German or any representation, German. Do you really, have a maker or two you love? Uh, no, not specifically. I, I'm, you I'm, go around. I go around. I like okay. trying different things. I, again, I'm always trying to learn and educate my. But palate. it's funny you say that because people go, "Oh, I don't drink Riesling. It's so sweet." If you gave that guy the bone dry, he'd go, "This is pretty good." Yeah. Why are you saying it's not that popular? Well, I think people want a little. <laughs> Every we've been trained to say we like dry wines, okay. And if you put a group of people in here, yeah, that's people, baloney. It's baloney. Yeah. As soon as you people put drink little, Bordeaux for the first time, yeah. they're like, "What is this?" As soon as you put a little bit of sugar in there, they instantly love the wine. What's one more. of the most popular wines in the U.S.? The Prisoner. The Prisoner. It's a blend with high residual it's sugar. Got like it's playing, 15 RS. It's it. playing to that palate. Yeah. All right, let's go to question two. We talked about this in many iterations. Let's talk about you. Favorite, your favorite wine and food pairing. Not what you think is a great one, which we talked about. It's something I assume you don't eat every night, every week, every month. But, you know, it's what you know to be. Is it that duck and cab or is there something else? Uh, no, I, I'm a prime rib guy. So so classic prime rib Cla- in the juice? Classic prime with- rib, bloody juice. And you got to give me a northern Brunello or Amarone, something like that. A big, big red wine with it. Wait, you said Amarone. And you said Brunello? Yep. Montalcino? Yep. Okay. All right, so big wines. Big wines. All right. Yep. I like that. Um, a lot of people go steak and cab. You go prime oh, rib and Brunello. Good one. All right. Um, this would be an interesting question because a lot of people I talk to, um, 
travel, and a lot of them are in New York. Favorite wine restaurant and or bar. So now let's talk about two things here. Is there any place up around you where you could walk in and the wine list is great, the vibe is cool, the people there are cool? Restaurant or wine bar or both? And is there anything in your travels that sticks out? Uh, so down in Niagara, we were really lacking in a couple of cool wine bars. There's a couple little wine shops that have really opened up. It's not that, happening yet? Because everywhere it's starting to happen. Yeah, so we're, again, the ability to really do that and dive into it really hasn't totally opened up. There's a couple that are decent, but a couple of them, the ones that I really love, closed because of COVID, which is hard ah. to see, right? So you really got to go up to Toronto, which is about an hour away from me to go to a couple of cool Great places. Big city for... Big city, right? Give me a place in Toronto that does um, it well. There's a, it's called uh, Cava Wine Bar on New York Street, okay. I think. I ha- I'll have to look it up at the address. But not just your average wine bar, kind of a cool place to walk into? Uh, it's a cool place to walk into. It's kind of underground. The door's kind of off to the side. Cool. It's not really listed, so you got to kind of walk down a couple set of stairs, and it's got an underground 70s vibe to it. Oh, so neat. That's suede, exactly suede what... Suede chairs, right? So you so walk in, you go, this is a cool place. Am I wrong in saying or assuming that... To me, it seems like Montreal has a lot more places like that, or 100%. there's plenty. Of, it is the vibe it's, in Montreal is for wine, natural wine, cool wine. But yeah. okay, I wasn't sure because yeah. I, you know, I haven't been to Toronto as much. I All make right. I make a really cool blend at the winery that is the most popular wine in Quebec. It's called P3. So it's Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Petit Verdot. It's not a white wine. It's not a rosé, but it's like a white blend with a little bit of orange color. It's a wine that's Is it so, more of an orange wine? It's if not, you had to pick, but it's... It's like in the middle, but I don't okay. want to call it orange wine because it's not on the skins, right? But it's very cool and funky, so they love it, and they love wines like that. Do you sea. make it regularly? Every year. Just smaller volume? It just No, it's it was a happy accident that was 200 cases. Now it's grown to almost 10,000 cases. So I had a guy named uh, Roger Chinchero on and Sutter Home. And they screwed up with that white Zinfandel. They mm-hmm. left it on the skins. And what do we do? It became, you know, a zillion cases. <laughs> Sometimes there's those Good accidents mistake. that happen behind winery doors. All right, me. fourth question. Favorite all-time wine. When I originally structured this question and started the show, I wanted to know what was the rarest, most expensive wine you ever tasted. I don't care about that anymore because we all can tell us. What's the wine that had the most influence on you? What was that gateway? What changed the way you thought? Maybe it got you in the business. Could have been your grandfather's wine, just because this is important to me. Do you have a wine or two that checks that box? Uh, when I was in Australia, I got the opportunity to go to a wine tasting that I had no business being in the room. <laughs> no business being in the room, but luckily in the door. At that tasting, there was a 1982 LaGrange port. And that wine, that old... At the time, it was 36 years old, something like that, when I tasted it. Just the freshness, the purity of fruit, the amount of texture and layers that were built into that wine. You could just see the craftsmanship, the artistry, and the intention of that winemaker. So long down the track, he had that vision to see where that wine was going to be. Just a a completely eye-opening experience for me that I didn't view wine as a product anymore, as an art form and right, a, a, caps, thing. a thing encapsulated right. in time. Right? That's that's how you answer the question. What's funny is I told you I've done this 250 times. Nobody's ever said that wine, and it could be arguably 
one of the great wines of the world. Yeah. You know, when you say, give me your top 10 NBA players, your top 10 baseball players, your top 10 hockey players, that may be in your top 10 wines, yeah. one of the, you know, the great wines in the lab. I'm surprised it doesn't come up. You know why? It's not in favor with everyone. No, no, way. it's not. It's, it's a real, again, that style of wine, that, yeah. that boldness. Like, it's, you really got to be, you got to be appreciative wine drinker to understand that wine. That's a, that's a good answer, and I totally get it. All right, last question. You should be able to handle this, and if you want to stay within your barn, you could do that. You can go outside. So the question is, recommend to me best wine around 15 20 22 bucks recommend a red recommend a white you could do category like muscadet is a pretty good value for you know okay. um if you want to stay if if inniskillen has those price points give me some of those if it's just favorites of yours like loire cab franc you can get for 20 you know throw anything out at me okay. and the reason i ask this question is i have kids in their late 20s they can't show up at a dinner or give a gift with 11 12 14 dollar wines they ain't paying forty five fifty. So no, how do you sure. wow, you know, at twenty? I think you have to stay. You have to go a little bit out of the box and try okay. different regions, right? So let's go. Um, again, I was at a wine bar two nights ago, and I tried a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir that really blew my socks off. When fifteen years ago, and that wine on the wine list was I don't know nineteen bucks a glass, but I'm sure. So that means if you went up there and bought it, it's yeah, probably in the 18, retail is 18, somebody somewhere around eighteen, could be 19 twenty bucks, right? Yeah. So again, regions, so there's some Willamette Pinots that's doing really good. You come up to Canada and look again, Pinots. There's great value for money in the Niagara region. There's some really good local producers are doing it. Myself, Taz is doing it. They make us. How do you spell Taz? T a w s e. Taz. Taz makes beautiful Pinot Noir. Uh, All right, so that checks the red box. Checks Give me the some red wines. box. Uh, so, whites. Um, it's usually easier for people to do the whites. Everybody struggles on the red. I, I'm a very picky white drinker. So, by the way, I'm gonna interfere here, and a lot of people say you can get great Rieslings at lower price. You know, there's some value in Riesling. But I'm not giving you that as an answer. But what there is. So, and again. So that's one. That's one. Um, and I think if you if you go out to BC and look at some of their whites, they're doing some really cool stuff on sandy soils, which impacts a lot of these whites because they're really stressed in these So things. British Columbia, British way Columbia, west. Way west. Is it same like, latitude, up or down? It's up a little bit more latitude. Okay. You think what kind of grapes? Chenin Blancs. Oh, I love like that. that. Which is really cool okay. out there. And they're selling for 20 bucks, 18 20 bucks, 18 bucks. So British Columbia white Chenin Blanc. Yep. All right. Nobody's ever said that before. <laughs> I'm going to be the different guy. All right. I didn't mention, but I'll post your answers on our social media in the coming weeks. All right. We got to wrap up the show. We got about five minutes to discuss this uh, last topic. So every week we taste a different wine on air. We do a thing called the weekly wine sip. If I'm sitting here with a winemaker, why wouldn't I let him bring his wine on, taste it, and analyze it? So I saved the fourth wine for last, and it is... Cabernet Franc. Now, a couple things, and then I want you to do all the talking. Um, Cabernet Franc is a favorite of yours, mm -hmm. which is why we left it for last. Um, two things. Tell me specifically what we're drinking, and then tell me why you have this affinity for it. Then we'll taste and analyze. So this is our 2019 Inneskillen Cab Franc Ice Wine. 
Uh, it's 100% Cab Franc. Um, again, picked 19 was a great growing season for these wines. We had an early pick this year. We picked this about December 23rd. So about a month later, we had it ready to go and in bottle. This wine was fermenting. It was so very aromatic that I knew we had a real good winner here. The raspberry, strawberry rhubarb, almost candied strawberry coming off this ferment really jumps out of the glass. It also has this real nice perceived, not herbal note, but this tanniny structure in the back end that some of the other ice wines don't actually get being a red. Right. right? You right. talk so, tan and you talk red. It, it you really talk on white that. wines, right. It, it has that It gives ability. you a structure to work with. To right. give work with, right? So it pairs with some of these more herbal things. So you can bring mushrooms and all those sorts of things into play with the Cap Franc. Is why it's versatile. That's what I like about it. So let's do an analysis. When you look at the color, um, you know... We were talking about rosés before. It looks like one of these deep, dark provincial rosés, or darker. You yeah, know, I, what would you say? It's like an orangish pink, translucent. Yeah, I would almost almost say the middle of the heart of it. It's like a, a ruby red, and it fades out to a little bit of an yeah, orange. Yeah, it bricks or whatever. Yeah. So that's the color. Let's throw it over the tongue and talk to me about mouthfeel. I have my opinions. I'll go first, and then I'll let the okay. expert go, because the other wines were more cloying in a good way, because sometimes you use the word cloying as a negative. Oh, that's too cloying. You know, they're unctuous, they're thick, but it all works because the acidity is good. This is definitely, I guess, by design or grape, a way less cloying wine, but it has that full mouth feel and that coverage the glycerin it's just a different profile different profile right and so. it's nice it's you know refreshing not in the drink way but refreshing to have a sweet wine that's not yeah that you know doesn't, honey doesn't dominate cover yeah. with that honey character so right? tell me about mouth feel what am, am so again, i right on that you're right on that so again when you're it, when you taste ice wines, you're trying to really, any sweet wine, you're trying to get it to the back of your palate. You really want to pick up those fruit flavors first. You want the side of your palate really to draw that acid out and get the sweetness on the back end. Is that the way palates work? That's the way palates work, right? Okay. So you got to be careful on where you're putting okay. what in your well, mouth, I, too. Right? I knew so. something was going on, but you <laughs> laid it out for me. Right, so... Generally, I, we would use an aromatic glass or a diamond-shaped glass that would force you to lift that volume and get it to the back of your palate, bring the acidity in, and have the sweetness at the end. So you get this real round shaping of this wine. Cab Franc notoriously has that glycerin-y character to it, right? Being a red grape, it also has a little you bit You mean of, just straight up Cab just Franc? Just straight up Cab Franc. It always has that character that comes out into it. Again... With ice wines, too, we're going to have a little bit of a buildup of acetic acid, which really lifts the fruit, too. So they have a little bit higher VA levels because it's challenging for the yeast to ferment, which really brings that fruit out, rounds the palate out. And again, it's not cloying, like you said, because the acidity really cuts it. So it's almost cleansing to your palate that it's, it's there, it's long, but it's sweet, and then it rounds off, and it just slowly dissipates. All right, so stick your schnoz in the glass and tell me, give me the, the characteristics on the nose. I suck at this, but when you go raspberries or whatever, I go, oh, yeah. yeah so what so, do you got? So for me, this is a real rhubarb dominant, like a candied rhubarb. This vintage, or are you going to pick up rhubarb on uh, You'll your... generally get rhubarb on most of them. Okay. This is more of a... So rhubarb is a sweet, 
sour tangy or what do you yeah, tangy character to it and then the strawberries yeah i would say it's a little bit fresh strawberry there's a real dried raspberry note in there and people well, how do you know that i said well you have to be conscious when you're eating those things right the last time you had a strawberry when did you actually think about eating the strawberry and the taste in your brain it's muscle you have to use it to get used to it right totally agree but when's the last time you had a dry raspberry well, they're sitting in my fridge right now. So. Well, that's because you don't know what the hell you're doing. All right. Let's go to palate. Yep. Does the palate replicate the nose, or do you pick up other things, additional things, too? We did mouthfeel, color, nose. What are we tasting straight up? You, get a, you really get that. You get the rhubarb. You get the strawberry. There's also this dried black plum note that comes in the back end. The plums really dominating that yeah. character, and that's that's the cool thing too because ice wines are evolving, right? This is a three-year-old wine now. Ice wines age beautifully, 10, 20 years down the track, and that fruit will slowly have an ebb and flow where it changes from dried characters to fresh fruit, and then back to dried characters. So, I think it's important people know this. You buy ice wine, you buy a quality ice wine like Inniskillen. You could lay it down five, ten, fifteen, twenty Easy. years. And, and, and like you said, it goes through this evolution. And, and if you're a, a drinker that likes an aperitif, you like sipping on a wine, when you open a bottle of our ice wine, too, it will stay in your fridge for 8 to 10 days after you open it and be just there as you good go. as the day you opened it. It's two weekends. Two weekends. Two barbecues. Two barbecues. Two Saturday barbecues. Right? So that's a real I, advantageous sell point. Give so. me, on this specific particular wine, give me the best food pairings. Uh, so Cab Franc. Uh, again, I love having it with a really intense cheese with some salami on a charcuterie board. You have to throw like a Parmigiano Reggiano, a smoked Gouda, a blue cheese. You have some really good salamis or supersata beside it. It's it's so just great with the strong the charcuterie strong flavor, strong the flavor. strong cheeses yep. like a hard Parmesan yep. or a smoky, like you said, Gouda. And then on a main course dinner, again, you get some duck confit with like some eggplant and all sorts of different garden variety vegetables, even beets. Those red flavors really come to to, really come together and really round out the whole meal. All right, so start thinking about uh, ice wines for your meals, all right? All right, Nick, we got to wrap up. Let me do a quick wrap-up, and let me get some info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. If you subscribe... Podcast shows up automatically. You wake up next to Nick. There's the podcast. When's the last time you woke up next to some Canadian guy making wine, right? Um, follow us on Instagram at sbenruby, on Twitter at benruby. A little confusing, but you can always reach us on both with the hashtag The Grape Nation. We're on Facebook at The Grape Nation. As I mentioned, we'll post Nick's wine list. I'll give you those answers. He had some interesting answers. And I will give you the wines that we tasted on air and off air um, for our weekly wine sip. Uh, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong. We tasted two Vidal's, a Riesling, and a Cab Franc, right? Correct. Um, so I'll put those on our social media fight, uh, sites. Uh, Nick, a couple things. If 
our interest is peaked and we want to find more about Inniskillen, we're the best places to go. Inniskillen.com. I-N-N-I-S-K-I-L-L-I-N. Inniskillen. Now let's talk about social media. Inniskillen social media, Nick's social media. Is Inniskillen on? Yep. So at Inniskillen Wines is our handle on Twitter and Facebook and all these okay. social medias. My personal uh, Instagram is Nick Into Wine. N i c k i n t o w i n e. Correct. All right, Nick. We got to get you more followers. Okay. Uh, maybe this will do. All right. Uh, thank you to our guest, Nick Gazuck. Got that right, right? You got it. Right. Finally. Uh, thanks to our engineers. Liam and Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.